Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand you remember making an impact on you? It was probably, I'm trying to think as a kid, like Coca-Cola. Um, I can remember being at my grandparents' house being like teeny tiny for the holidays. And you had like the holiday Coke can with like, at that time, I don't even know if it was polar bears or if it was just like Santa. And that was so intertwined with the memories of like being with my cousins. So it's special. Is it Do you drink Coke now? I drink Diet Coke now. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Mandy Rassi, Mandy is the head of brand building at Kroger. Kroger is a Cincinnati-based $122 billion company. They're in the grocery business. What's really exciting about this podcast is Mandy talks about a brand new campaign, its first campaign with its new advertising agency, DDB, and it's animated, it's lots of fun, and it's grounded in a purpose. And that purpose is bringing fresh food to everyone. The tagline is fresh for all. Here is my interview with Mandy Rassi. Mandy, welcome to the CMO Podcast. We have not seen each other since late June when we were together at the Cannes International Festival of Advertising and Everything Else, sort of the Woodstock of Marketing. And it was your first time you came to that festival, I think. It was. It and was. Yeah. You participated in a class I run called the CMO Accelerator, where we had about 50 people who were either CMOs or aspiring CMOs. And as a kind of a natural teacher, I have to ask you to start this podcast. After you took my class for two days in Cannes, did you do anything with it? Did you learn anything in that (laughs) class that you're applying to your work? Yeah, absolutely. A few things I would call out. Um, If I'm allowed to say the name of of some of the companies we've done, some follow-ups with Forrester, with... um, Joanna, actually, we were with her and some of her team members last so week. So Forrester participated in the program as well. Yep. Yeah. Um, and they shared some really good perspective on where personalization, though she'll tell you she hates that term, kind of what is the future of that and customer centricity and, and how do things need to evolve um, in a world post-privacy. So we've spent a lot of time really working through that because we sort of view our marketing model probably like a lot of people on two sides. But the one-to-one sort of addressable and data side of it is a really important piece of our business. Um, And so we're thinking a lot about what that needs to look like in the future. So we've had some conversations there. Um, Media was another one and the intersection of media and creativity. Um, We are on an an overall transformation journey, I would say, at the Kroger Co. Um, We're transforming our brand, but also our marketing organization. And creative and media have sat in really different places in our organization forever. Um, And as we are now looking at really what our marketing organization needs to be in the future, we need to find a way to sort of put that content in context. Um, 
more in a collaborative space where the two are working together. Uh, and so we've had some some follow-ups related to some of the talks um, that were there. Um, of course, Scott Galloway is always amazing. Uh, so that was more just sort of provocative thought, um, you know, as to how do we sort of position ourselves probably more from an 8451 than Kroger point of view. Um, as we think about really being in service of customers and all of the work that we're doing, um, you know, so eighty four fifty one is your subsidiary in data science and analytics. It is, which you it work is. closely with. We do. Um, so they help us. So I lead the marketing team. Um, we work really closely with them on our analytics, um, but then also on all of the addressable and sort of the science that feeds that. Really sits at eighty four fifty one, um, and so we're always innovating with them to say, okay, you know. Where else can we apply the science to make our marketing more relevant to our customers? So bringing media and creative together sounds so intuitive, but it's harder than it looks oh, yeah. on the outside. <laughs> so are you, do you have any strategies so far that are help, that's helping you kind of approach that within Kroger Co.? You know, I would say probably like a lot of places, we are early in this journey. So our marketing organization about a year and a half ago um, went through a complete transformation so we literally eliminated 100% of the jobs, not the people, but the roles themselves, reconfigured it all, rewrote the job descriptions, um, and then built the new organization. Uh, so so we, what was the impetus to do that? What was the business need? Yeah. So obviously retail is moving fast and is changing at lightning speed. Um, I think a number of our competitors are dictating a pace of change um, that really requires us to operate differently so that we can be a growth company in the future. Um, and so there's a broader transformation uh, effort that's happening across our business model and the company in total. Uh, ben um, Stuart Aiken, who is my boss, came into the marketing organization. He also leads 8451 um, and I think took a very different look at what role could and should marketing play um, in the company. And so we created a little task force of us who really then spent about six months digging into that to understand where does the company need to go, where is the industry going, where is the customer going, to think through what a marketing organization needs to look like. I think the history of Kroger for marketing, like a lot of food retailers, is really marketing was the advertising arm of merchandising. Um, and if you go back and watch the historical reel of advertising, it's pretty clear. Um, marketing was set up. So we had a marketing person for every line of business. So it was like the produce people had a marketing person, the general merchandise people had a marketing person, and then sort of all of that cobbled together to create um, what customers saw. Um, as we looked at what's needed, really marketing needs to play a much more strategic role in the company as we think about being advocates for the customer and really having communication um, and viewing marketing as a, an overall driver of the new growth model and really a traffic driver for the enterprise. Um, so rather than doing this sort of bottom-up look at things, we needed to do more of a top-down, like what will get customers to come into our ecosystem more often um, and get more people to come. Uh, and so we kind of looked at that um, and kind of stepped back and said, okay, how do we need to start to configure this? But I will say it's been a year now in the new organization we're continuing to learn. So media and creative, I would say we're still learning a lot. Some of it is really basic things. So our media team sits in Portland. Part of our creative organization is there, but most of them are here in Cincinnati. Um, so just communication, getting people to um, even like 2020 planning for the first time, we get everyone in a room together with our internal media team, our external media partners, some of the key publishers that we work with as well, along with our internal creative team, and we now have an external creative partner 
to just get folks collaborating um, and getting those different voices around the table much earlier. Whereas in the past, it was more of like, we'll create the marketing plan and then we'll hand that off to the media team and say, okay, we need a TV spot here and we need some radio over there. Instead, we're saying, this is what we're trying to do for customers. This is the new brand strategy. How can that come to life in the content, but also in really thinking about our media more strategically so the content and the media channels are really determined together? So Mandy, this transformation sounds really exciting. So what's, what's one huge learning you've had other than putting creative and media together? And now that you're a year into this tra- yeah. transformation, what's one big learning for you? Um, it's an obvious learning, but change is really hard, um, especially in a 136-year-old company. Um, and I think especially if many of us were new to the organization. So we came in like guns blazing. We see all the things that are possible and we want to get there instantaneously. Um, but a lot of people are impacted by that change. So there's our marketing team, which is about 160 people. We have all of our external agency partners and we have all of the business stakeholders around us. Um, and as we evolve, that obviously impacts their work. Um, and just thinking through the pace of change and how we bring people along um, and be a bit ruthless about prioritization because it, you know it's an easy slope to get on where we see 10 things we want to do and we want to go after all of them right now. Uh, and the reality is we still need to deliver the current business while transforming the whole model um, and being really ruthless in being able to say, this is the one thing we most need to do right now. Um, and being able to have sort of the later list, like we'll talk about it if we have the now list, the next list, and the later list. And so we can acknowledge like, yeah, we want to get to that thing, but it's okay that maybe it's going to be six months until we can touch it, or we need to finish these other couple of things first um, to just make the change a little bit more manageable because it can feel overwhelming. I think especially for people on our team who've been at Kroger for a long time. And what we're asking them to do is really different than what some of them have done for maybe 20 years. Um, And so how do we think about navigating people through that, but then also providing the training and development that they need to be successful in what this new world is. Sounds great. And listen, we're getting into this interview and it's really wonderful. And we're to come back to this marketing transformation, but I typically do a lightning round at the ever, at okay. the end of every interview. I sort of want to do that toward the beginning of this one, okay? just so we can get to know you a bit better. So I'm going to fire a bunch of questions at you and just take them wherever you want to take them. So the first one is you studied at Miami University in Ohio and you studied psychology and women's studies. Tell us about your favorite course. Oh, my favorite course was probably my capstone women's studies course, which was basically a semester long research project where you have an advisor, you get to pick the topic and they give you some resources to basically go do um, qualitative research, quantitative research. You can go dig through census data, you know, all of sort of the things that are out there. Um, And I loved the open ended nature of it to just be curious Um, And I, at that point, um, there was a lot happening on campus around like personal safety and sort of gender roles, obviously, because it was women's studies. And so I had researched um, the sexual assault um, problem that was existing on the campus at the time, but through the lens of the masculine culture at Miami. So I spent that six months sort of researching um, men and the fraternity system and the sports and, you know, kind of how all of those factors were coming together um, and then how that was impacting what women were experiencing on the campus. So it, it was wow. a Wow. Did you publish that project. outside the university? Did you ever? No, no. We, I like published it within, you know, kind of the department and um, what the advisors do there. But no, I guess I probably should have thought of that. Uh, so then P&G eye-opening. hired you, right? And that's probably 
one of the reasons they hired you for the initiative on that. And PNG was your first job out of Miami? It was. Yeah, so somehow they hired me. <laughs> the funniest story in your first few months at PNG, because it's a funny culture to come into from the outside. It is. I remember that. <laughs> well, and I had never taken a business class. So it's even funnier when. So extra shocking. Extra shocking. I mean, I was psychology, women's studies. So I had done a lot of research and I had gone into consumer and market knowledge, which is obviously very research and, and data and insights based. So that bit was a little smoother, but I literally knew nothing about finance. Um, and so, you know, to come into this corporate culture where everyone is very strong, you know, you have your marketing organization. A lot of the folks I was working with are like Wharton MBAs and Harvard MBAs, and they know all of this stuff. Um, and so I don't know if it was so much funny as it was like sitting in these meetings, like, I literally have no idea what these people are talking about. It's all these acronyms and spreadsheets. And luckily I had an amazing finance manager who like basically gave me the course on it, uh, to sort of explain everything and break it down so we could understand the levers on the business. But I'm sure I had some where I asked really dumb questions, um, you know, just trying to figure it out. And then just the acronyms at PNG more generally takes forever to get your head around where like, well, yeah. what are they even talking about? You said in entire meetings, like words that aren't really words, acronyms that aren't acronyms anywhere else in the world. When I joined PNG, there was an acronym dictionary. Actually, they gave new hires. Isn't yeah, that, that would be helpful. Yeah. It's but actually what I've learned, now. so they left me, every company has their own acronyms. Every company's kind of oh, yeah. mystifying. That, that's kind of what's fun about it, you know? Yeah. So anyway, what's the first thing you do when you get up in the morning? Um, usually I check my phone. Uh, which like is probably terrible. It's not what I you know. should probably do. And not we all do it. <laughs> and not necessarily for work, but I like to see like kind of the newsfeed, what's going on. Uh, you know, there, I have some folks who will text me really late at night. So I'm like, okay, who was texting me at like 11 o'clock last night? Hope they're friends. Mainly friends. My sister who's on a different time zone. She's allowed to do it at any time, right? Correct. <laughs> so what's the favorite activity you do with your three kids? Oh, all of us together, I would say, um, just like being outside. So we have a pool at our house now, which is a ton of fun. And that seems to be with uh, my twins are seven, my older daughter's 11. That is a sort of one size fits all. Everybody can be happy with it. Um, otherwise, I have things that I do more with each of them individually because their personalities are and interests are totally different. So what brands are your kids into now? Oh, so it varies, I would say. Those My son, ages. who is seven, um, is all like Under Armour, Adidas, you know, all, all the workout clothes um, and anything sports related. Um, My littlest daughter right now is really into Shopkins, which are, they're just like these yeah. little things. Um, and they are kind of cute. They get lost all over my house. But there is something that for a seven-year-old girl, it's just the most fascinating thing where they can build these little stories and kind of worlds with these things and then reconfigure them. Uh, My daughter's was Polly Pocket. Oh, yeah, probably exactly. Now, but they were everywhere. Uh -huh. God, they were everywhere. And like tiny pieces yeah. and then the dog likes right. to eat them. You got it. And the little <laughs> brother puts them in his mouth. And, uh -huh. and then my older daughter, she's 11. She has a phone that she's had for about six months. And like even this morning, she's in my room at six o'clock, like, look at this TikTok video uh, that her friend had like probably sent her last night too late after they were supposed to be in bed. So she's more kind of getting into that phase of life, I guess. Your favorite aisle to shop in Kroger? Uh, produce. What do you read, watch, or listen to every day? Um, 
probably nerdy work-related things. Um, ad age is one I always look at more just from an inspiration point of view. Um, I love Katie Couric's blog um, as a good perspective on sort of current events to just know what was going on in the world with a smart perspective around it. Um, those are probably the main ones like every day um, that are non really direct. Do you do anything to stay current in retail? I mean, you, ad age is part of that, but anything to help you stay current and what's going on in retail? I try to be out in the world as much as possible um, in terms of like if we're in a market, don't just go see whatever Kroger banner is there, but go and see the competitors um, and what they're doing that's new and interesting. There are certainly lots of retail trade magazines that you can read, but more interesting to me, you know, that stuff is fine. I'm more interested in what is taking hold with customers. And sometimes it's even related to sort of our direct market, but a lot of times it's other retailers who are doing interesting things, let's say with technology um, that are probably ahead of where more of the CPG retail spaces or the food retail spaces, um, where there might be a nugget that we can learn. Is there any retailer that recently you visited that was doing something really cool? Um, there are lots of retailers that are doing something cool. Um, one that we were in over the summer um, was a Hy-Vee kind of in the middle of, I think it was Iowa, Idaho, maybe. I don't, I don't remember. It was somewhere in the middle. Um, but it was really a health and wellness-based sort of format. Um, and we have a partnership with, with Walgreens. We have a little pilot um, here in Kentucky, which you may see. So as part of that, we had done sort of a joint trip um, to go and check out this format that they had. And they had um, sort of an orange theory that was literally attached to the store um, and then had the typical things of like the smoothie bar in there. But it was a good mix of sort of traditional grocery with a lot of wellness infused in it in a relatively small box um, that I thought was just a creative intersection of lifestyle and sort of what the future of food could kind of look like. So who has been an, a really important mentor for you? Oh, goodness. Um, I think there are different mentors who I've had for different things. Um, one of my bosses at P&G, Monica Turner, would be one where I feel like I go back to a lot of the principles that I learned and the way I saw her navigate situations um, and coaching that she gave. Uh, she's a very strong leader. I don't know if you know Monica. Um, so she's a, a sales vice president mm -hmm. there. And I worked on the club business. So I was on her team in my last assignment there. And just the clarity um, that she would have on the strategy and what we're trying to get done. Um, and then be almost ruthless about driving that focus for the organization. So, you know, if we would kind of get distracted, she always did a really good way of bringing it back to like, this is what we're trying to get done. Um, and you always left a meeting with clarity, uh, which seems really easy. But I will say, as I've taken on bigger teams, it, it's really easy to get caught up in kind of the Absolutely. churn of the day to day. Uh, and so there are many times where I'm sort of channeling my inner Monica of like, okay, what's the priority? And also, sort of flip it positive was something she would always say. So even where you would get data that wasn't great or there's a challenge, which at the time the club business at, at P&G was very challenging um, for a number of reasons. And always it was, well, flip it positive because it can be, yes, you can get big losses in the club channel, right? If you lose a skew in distribution, it can really put you in a negative place quickly. But if you get one more in, a big win comes really quickly. So we would always reframe it to like the shifts are big, but think how big the win could be. Uh, and so I always try to have that with my organization now. Like, okay, is there a way to find the positive or flip it positive to bring people along and get them energized even when things are really hard? What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. 
At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. So last question in the lightning round. Is there a favorite book you're reading now or recently or a series you're watching that you love? Uh, ooh. Um, I don't watch a ton of TV, I will say. And what I do uh, is like embarrassingly silly stuff because I think it's just like mental escape of like real housewives and below deck and lots of really not super substantive Bravo TV, but I love it. Um, but I think also for marketing, it's a little bit of a pulse on culture of sure what's going on. Um, in terms of reading this summer, I think I read a lot of work-related books, to be honest with you. I just reread the first 90 days because I started this job 30 days ago. Good for you. Um, and again, it's one of those where the principles are a little bit basic, but every time I read it, it's just a good reminder of like, oh yeah, don't forget, need to do that, need to do this, like making the list of, of the conversations I need to have. Um, so that's probably one recently. Um, that I just remembered how good it was. Mandy, you're the VP of marketing at Kroger, and you recently hired Kroger's first ever agency of record, DDB. So I want to get into both of those in a bit more detail. So why did Kroger decide that they needed to transform marketing? You've talked about that a Mm -hmm. bit so far, but you came in, you've got a big scope, and what's your remit exactly? You know, what what do you look over? If I had to say, here are your buckets of work mm-hmm. and here's what you you do every day, what are those things? Uh, so it's really the end-to-end marketing plan and the execution of that for Kroger in simplest terms. Um, so in the most upstream, it's we have a strategic planning team that sits in my group that is really all about um, bringing in the data, the insights, the customer understanding, the industry landscape, um, and setting the annual brand plan. And we're actually in that phase right now for 2020. Um, So that's a big piece of the work. Um, And then actually working through, now that we have that plan, what are those tentpole moments through the year and, you know, getting all of those briefed, the creative, you know, all of that, and then measuring it on the back end. We also have a life cycle team. So if you think of, we have those big tentpole moments of like holiday is an obvious one. Um, But then we really are focused on knowing our customers really well and serving up relevant marketing along the way. And that's sort of the other arm on our life cycle side, um, who work really closely with 8451. um, And we have sort of journeys and things that are running and we're working through a whole technology um, sort of evolution that needs to happen there. As we think about 8451 was not always part of Kroger. They were originally Denhumby USA. It's now been many years that they've been part of us. um, But trying to connect the content systems is a big focus for us right now of how do we get that whole content network. So some of it is part of marketing, some of it is not. Um, and I'm spending a lot of time right now with the folks on our lifecycle team, the folks at 8451, people on our digital and technology teams to figure out how we can get all the data working together and then how we get the content, one, as much content as we need because it is a massive escalation if we look at the amount of content we had in a year even just in 2019 and what we're going to need in 2020 to 2025 
we've got to find new ways of creating the content and making it readily available so that as we improve our science um, about our customers, we can tee that So up. the content's exploding because you're doing more More addressable. Yep, more personalization. And it's not always one-to-one. I think that's the other bit we're spending some time right now thinking about is when does it need to be one-to-one and is that meaningful? And when is, you know, what I would say is targeted or addressable or frankly even just context relevant more important um, and good enough without getting to the creepy scale. Because I think sometimes if everything goes so one-to-one, either you get um, actually the meme that Joanna Forrester uses where like the sweater is being retargeted and someone gets it as a gift. And it's like, oh, this would have been lovely if I wouldn't have been retargeted by it five times to know that it was coming. Um, So I think, you know, we're trying to figure out that balance of when is Mm -hmm. kind of segment level, you know, enough. But um, I would say in, in a week, there's sort of that, how are we building the plan and executing it? But then probably 50% of my time right now is trying to figure out what is needed to make sure um, we can continue to grow even just a year from now. So you've had a busy year and a half almost since being yeah. at Kroger, right? So you've, so tell us, let's go back to that decision you made to leave P&G, yeah. which is a giant CVG company, and go to a giant retailer. Mm-hmm. What was that like? What was the decision like and what was your first month or two like? How did you get started in a way that's helped you have a good first year and a half? Yeah. Well, so I went to 8451 first. Okay. So I left P&G after almost 14 years. Um, and I had been working, I spent a lot of my time in the global fabric care business, but then I had spent the last six or seven years working on the retail side across North America. Um, Kroger had been one of my clients probably five or six years, maybe before that, right when I had come over to the retail side. Um, and then I had worked in innovation in the club channel. Um, but I came to 8451 within the analytics group um, to sort of help reimagine the consumer research function there, which was definitely close to home. I had spent all of my time at P&G, like, yes, a fair amount in sort of the sales arm, but always in a brand role within consumer insights and strategy and innovation, things like that. Uh, so for me, the transition was actually big global company to at the time, I think 8451 had maybe 700 people, uh, so it, which is not small. tiny, but it felt oh, yeah. really small. Um, and at that point, I think my first week was the one-year celebration of aniver- the one-year anniversary of 8451 being created. Um, when they had split with Dunhumby and become part of Kroger. So there was a lot of learning curve on like HR systems didn't exist. The current head of HR who's there, who's fabulous, joined, I think, six weeks before I did. So she was trying to build that out. Um, They were hiring at a crazy clip. So It was like a startup. It was like a startup. And we were figuring it out as we went. Um, So there were some days where I'd have the these moments of like, I owned the whole research budget for Kroger. Um, pretty quickly after I came into the role. And I think at P&G- it's different from P&G. So different, right? Where you have all these almost layers of real expertise in the management line, but so many safety nets as well. Um, you know, even I think at like, I left as an associate director at P&G. And even at that level, there was still a lot that had to run through like my general manager or things like that. And I remember being like my first week at 8451 and there was some contract that came for like several million dollars or whatever. And I was like, can, I can just sign that? Like, is there, is there a purchasing team this needs to go through? And I remember my finance person laughing, like, no, you just decide. Like, do you think it's the right thing that we should do or not? Uh, and so there was some adjustment of that. Like, is this, like, this is reality? I can just, like, decide and we're going to go do this? Uh, so it was a lot of fun because we could move 
really fast. If we wanted to pilot something, you know, as long as we were delivering the core business, we could just go and test and try um, in a way that was a lot faster than what I had been used to. Uh, so that was fun. Um, but then there were all the other, you know, just Start growing pains. Startup-y yeah. things where it's like, oh, no, there's not another function who does that. So, like, Do you're it. purchasing, you know, you're the HR person uh, to some extent. We don't have, like, ratings and review systems. They were all in, like, Excel documents. Uh, so in a way then, so I was there for two years. Um, and over that time period, I uh, after we got the research team sort of up and running, we had reorged with a group at Kroger. Um, and I will say on that one, the P&G training, you know, I knew the, it was an analytics team that I had. So I knew the grounding that I had in analytics and insights and research um, would, would be helpful to me. What I had underestimated was the leadership training um, where I was three months into the role. It was like, we're going to do the first ever reorg of Kroger and 8451 coming together as one team. Um, and just the foundation of knowing how to navigate that and having seen really amazing leaders lead an organization through it and handle really tough one-to-one um, -to -one conversations with impacted employees. I was very grateful. Um, but yeah, it definitely felt different. So in a way, then two years later, I came over to Kroger. And at the time at 8451, I had moved into the marketing space about a year um, before to start up a different team there. Um, so then when I came back to Kroger, in a way, it felt like coming home of like, oh, Big company. A, a big company. Like we have all these systems and we have all this matrix that's happening. Um, but somehow in a way, I think because that's sort of what I had grown up with, um, it just it just feels a little more like, oh, I know how to, I know what to do with that. <laughs> yeah. So you came in as head of brand to Kroger mm -hmm. and uh, you're about a year and a half into that. So tell us about that year and a half. You've been undergoing a marketing transformation. You've hired your first agency of record. So what was that like for you coming into that? What was your, how did you lead? How did you get started? How did you set priorities? How did you become, how did you build sort of your cohort Yeah. when you came into Kroger? Um, so when I came in, Brand had never been a function at Kroger. So there wasn't a, like you're taking over. So it was a new role. It was a new role, new team as part of an organization that had just been completely redesigned. Um, and I was fortunate to have been on the team that helped design it. So I sort of understood how it was set up, had some influence of how it was set up. Um, so where I began was first getting really clear on the work, um, just understanding, okay, within this broader organization. So the work of marketing at Kroger. The work of marketing at Kroger, um, what it had been in the past and what it needs to be now and in the future. Um, and in that situation, I had come in as the leader of brand. So I was really focused on, okay, if we're going to have a brand function in Kroger, what does that function really need to do? What role do we need to play in marketing? What role do we need to play in the company? Um, I spent a lot of time looking at data. I think that's a little bit of my roots. And I tell the organization now, like, my goodness, like help you all because Stuart and I both come from an analytics background. So I think we're, we just love all the data. But Was um, it data, customer data or employee data or um, industry of, data or what, what sort of Some data of all of that. So okay. kind of a landscape assessment on... How is the organization feeling? Um, a lot of interviews uh, with other stakeholders on what do we need to do? What's working? What's not working? What opportunity do you see? Um, as it related to brand in particular, we did some stakeholder interviews even just to understand like what what is Kroger's brand? What do we stand for? What is special about this place? Um, what is sort of the heart and soul of what this brand needs to be about? 
Um, and that was sort of intertwined with the org setup, um, trying to just understand baseline of where we were starting on everything. Um, but then also a lot of time looking at industry data because right for me, it was a bit of a cross-functional move. While I'd worked in strategy for a long time and brand, the work we needed to do, um, especially in that first year and a half, was very much strategy work. Um, so that was comfortable, but um, I hadn't worked um, in anything that had touched media at that point for two years, but a lot changed in those two years. Um, so really there was a lot to also learn about, you know, how does a brand strategy now need to intersect with all these other things? Um, so we got really clear on, okay, here's the work that needs to be done. And then, you know, typical 30, 60, 90s, you know, six months from now, a year from now, where do we want to be? And what are the skill sets that are needed to do it? And then wrote the job descriptions and somehow convinced um, all of these amazing people who are now on the brand team to um, leave gainful employment in other places in many cases to come and take on this journey. Of, so you had a mixture of outside hires and internal Kroger yep, people. Almost exactly 50-50. And of the ones, um, there were folks who had been part of the Kroger marketing organization um, who'd been with Kroger in many cases more than 10 years. So their institutional knowledge uh, as someone who was new coming in was invaluable because they knew how to get things done. They could see around corners where a lot of us who were new would be like, oh, we need to go do this and this and that, and we're going to have this new strategy, and we need to hire an agency. Uh, and they would say, okay, but three months from now, this thing is coming, and you, you need to have that on your radar screen. Or just realize it's never been like this, so you need to have these conversations. And then the folks who came from the outside was a mix of agency background, CPG, um, someone from Starbucks. Uh, so it was a good external perspective um, as well of, of all of us sort of coming together with different backgrounds and, and different ways of going about it to sort of figure it out. But I think the common narrative that we had, um, and I think probably how I convinced some of them to come on this crazy journey is, when do you get a chance to completely transform a 135-year-old brand? Um, and a $120 billion brand. Huge, right? right? Yeah. Like at the time, it was like, okay, we're a Fortune 17 company. You look at our brand value, we're not even on the map. Um, so there's an obvious, I think, opportunity, but also really a call to do something big if you look at the competitive landscape and how things are evolving. Um, but also a brand that has a great story and a company that has, you know, not only a purpose on paper and, and purpose is hot now, but has had a purpose since the beginning. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that I have loved about um, the brand role in particular is the ability to go back through the archives. And, um, you know, that's one thing we don't have. The PNG obviously has like the big library of the archives and the history. Um, Kroger, there was like a file cabinet, you know, somewhere in like a dusty room in the basement where we had to pull all these articles out and find old commercials on YouTube and things like that. So you and your team went back and looked at all the history. From we the did. Beginning. We did. As, as we were trying to figure really out. good discipline. Um, yeah. Uh, and I think, you know, some of that is, is the training a bit, but also we really felt like we have to tell the story of what the company has always been about. You know, we can't just like make up from a white sheet of paper what this 135-year-old brand is going to be. It was more about how do we unearth the most special parts of that and really put a clear narrative around it. Um, what we saw in the customer data is while Kroger is a Fortune 17 company, $120 billion um, business, almost 3,000 stores across all these banners, when you'd ask a customer, well, what does Kroger really stand for? What comes to mind when we say Kroger? 
you would get 20 different answers. Um, and even if you asked folks internally, which we did, um, and, and we did stakeholder interviews of senior folks, folks out in the stores, like all different levels. Um, and then when you'd put it all on a page, there there wasn't a consistent story. Um, but there were threads that were consistent of the pride people have in the company, of this idea that we are of the local community. Um, you know, it's more of an egalitarian brand, I think, than some others in our space. Uh, if you go back to what the company was founded on, like down on Pearl Street here in Cincinnati, a lot of those roots are really there, and it's been a very humble company. And so I think part of it is we've been hesitant to tell the story of some of the things we're doing. Um, like we co-founded Feeding America. Nobody knows that. Um, you know, Forbes named Kroger as like the most giving company in the world this is now several years ago. Um, and all of that internally people feel really proud about. Um, but we'd never really told the story to customers, I think because of these humble Midwestern roots. And there were a lot of folks even just a year and a half ago who said, well, that's not why we do it. Like we don't do this so we can have a marketing campaign about ending hunger. We we do it because we should end hunger. Um, and so for me, that that was a big draw even to taking this job is the substance and the real heart and soul was there. And I think customers do want to know that. Like, obviously, or purpose wouldn't be the thing that it is in the industry now. But what I love about this is we're not just getting in the purpose game. We've actually been in it for 135 years. We just didn't tell anybody that. Uh, and so that's where we really started is how do we want to tell that story? And and then that it's sort a beautiful of opportunity. jumped us off. So good for you. Now, you hired your first ever agency of record we in did. 136 years, and that agency is DDB, which is a world-leading uh, advertising creative agency. So tell us how you decided you needed an agency. You know, it's, it wasn't controversial. There are some companies that are, that are kind of pulling back from using agencies, mm -hmm. moving things internally. So tell us about that decision. Why, first of all, you embarked on hiring an agency, and then I want to talk a little bit about the process. Yeah. Um, we are in such a place of transformation right now that we felt it was really important to have outside perspective. So Kroger's had an internal team and they do great work. Um, but I think what that organization did even three years ago versus what we need to do three years from now, um, it's a much bigger remit of work. Um, and so what we wanted to do is have external perspective to really push us bring fresh eyes on the business, both from a creative point of view, um, which is really important, but also we completely redid the way we're doing our marketing planning. So we used to have a quarterly promotional planning cycle, and that's how the marketing plan got decided. We're now doing an annual brand plan. That's a massive shift, um, and, and we're still going to work through that in 2020. Um, so having an outside partner who has done this many, many times um, on other big and complicated businesses um, felt like something that could really help accelerate our growth. Um, and frankly, we needed to be pushed out of our comfort zone. Um, you know, probably like a lot of big companies, but if you look at food advertising, uh, we'll kind of say it's all a sea of sameness, right? Even if you just think of your Instagram feed, it's all this beautiful top-down shots of food and it looks great. Um, but we did an exercise where we then pulled all the logos off of um, TV commercials, Instagram feeds, print ads, all of it, and you can't tell whose is whose. Uh, and so what we wanted to do is say, let's bring in someone who's going to look at this completely differently and help us find a way where we can break through that sea of sameness. So I assume you went through a review process, a pitch process, whatever it might be, and you came out on DDP. 
So tell me why. What was compelling about them and their approach to your brand, their approach to marketing, their approach to customers? Mm-hmm. What was it that made you? And was that a controversial move, um, choosing them versus other options? I don't think it was controversial choosing them. It's obviously bringing in an agency in general is a big decision. I don't know if I would say it was controversial because we're transforming so much across the company um, that it wasn't like months and months to figure out that we needed it. We kind of made the case of why and said, hey, let us do this to try it out. Um, But there are so many great agencies out there. Um, But as we went through the process, I would would say probably two things that really made DDB stand out. the just creative horsepower, and um, I'm excited for everyone to see the campaign that comes. They approached it completely differently than anyone else. Uh, and we gave everybody, obviously, the same sort of orientation and pitch, all the same data to work off of our perspective, all of that. Um, but then what they came back with, um, as we would be a, a couple days after, let's say, around the creative that they shared was the thing that still stuck in your mind and that we were still talking about. Um, we brought in some other folks at, at different points and then they would come back a couple days later, like, I am still thinking about that one. Like that really breaks through. That's really different. I never would have thought of it that way. Um, so that was one. The other thing that was really important to us because we have an internal team and we really value them and they're going to play a very important role now and in the future is we needed an external partner who was going to come in and really be a partner to that group and work collaboratively with them. Um, you know, and yes, a lot of businesses are going that way. So I don't think that's an unusual relationship to need to have. Um, but it was really important to us that it feel like partnership. And from the get-go with DDB, um, and we had our internal creative director was part of the team who was on the search journey with us. Um, and it was just easy between him and the co-CCOs at DDB, um, Derek and Lisa, who are just lovely and amazing and like positive energy all the time. Uh, so it just felt like the culture match was was really good there. And then obviously, Audrey and Wendy Clark is just amazing. Uh, So we're just really excited to work with them. And I will say they've done a great job of pushing us, but also sort of respecting where the company has been and how fast we can go um, in one direction or another. So it just kind of felt like it clicked. So your advice to others when they're choosing an agency is creativity and culture. Those are the two really powerful thoughts. DDB, it felt like the culture was right for you and the creativity was distinctive and stuck with you. Yep, absolutely. And I think today, if the creativity is not like light your world on fire, awesome, it's not going to break through. Um, And for us, it's a really big investment. So I really wanted it to feel like this is beyond what we have done on our own. Um, And so, yeah, that's what we were looking for. Mandy, you've talked about brand purpose several times in our podcast so far. And I, we always talk about brand purpose with every guest on my podcast. So I want to now sort of end with that. And you talked about Kroger's purpose. You talked about P&G being purpose-oriented. So I'd like to hear you talk about what you've learned about discovering or rediscovering that purpose in an organization and bringing it to life. So how do the approaches maybe compare and contrast with P&G and Kroger? And what have you learned as a leader about the importance of purpose and bringing it to life in our behaviors and in what we do every day? It's a a big question, I know, but sort of looking for your learning on living purpose. Yeah. So from a brand point of view, 
I think it has to be specific enough, I would say, is, is the big learning that I've had. Um, at PNG, I think the purpose was more specific than what ours at Kroger has been. And then it was complemented by very specific brand equity pyramids. So you had the link between those two things of the broader company purpose, and then how does that translate for this brand in a pretty specific way? When I first came into Kroger, we didn't have that brand equity um, piece of it. We had our purpose to feed the human spirit, which is really broad. So you know that that's why we want to exist in the world. But as a grocery retailer, how does feed the human spirit really come to life? Right, we're not a, a nonprofit. Um, that we have a foundation arm, but feed the human spirit could be very broad. Um, so I think having it be specific enough where we have to determine how is that going to come to life um, in terms of the brand experience we want to give our customers, but also our associate experience um, and making sure that we have ways of actually operationalizing that because otherwise I think it can be sort of lovely words on a page, um, but then where the experience for the employee or for the um, consumer doesn't really come to life that way. Um, as a leader, I do think there is a lot of it where, um, you know, and this is probably in the learning curve of where I am in my career, where as the organization gets bigger, there's just more stuff um, that happens with people, right? And so it's like, okay, across 160 people, there's always something going on with somebody in some way um, or groups of people and how they interact with each other. Um, and I think purpose can be and should be a really good guiding force. And that um, has helped me even in navigating some of those sticky things where either um, there's a team that's maybe not working as functionally as they could, or an individual who's going through a challenging time career-wise or life-wise. Um, and so how can we use the purpose to really stay focused on how are we going to handle that situation? How are we going to have that conversation? Um, how do we want to interact with one another? And be intentional, because I think if there's not uh, like we have principles for our mar our marketing organization of how we want to operate with one another because i think in absence of that it'll just happen one way or another um and maybe you end up with something that feels like where you want to be in is inspirational but there's also a chance that it doesn't um and i think especially right now in marketing we won't have the talent that we need to have if people aren't clear what we stand for and really feel like we're sort of aligned with values that they feel good about. Of all the leaders in the world, you know, you have to be up there among the, the most in touch with customers, right? You have an, a massive customer base. You're looking at that all the time. You worked at 8451. So how important is purpose to your customers? I mean, they don't say it the way you probably mm -hmm. say it, but how important is it? In, and what are your customers most interested in these days? I mean, I think this would be helpful for our listeners. There's so yeah. many things on sustainability and value and uh, and you know organic. Oh yeah, and how we treat each other. So what what is your what's your lens on what consumers are finding most urgent, most pressing, most interesting for them these days? Yeah. Um, so our world is pretty food centric. So I'm going to focus there. I think purpose is important across the board, um, and every everyone I think in marketing has been talking about that that people want to spend time with, invest their dollars with, be part of a brand that they feel is aligned with their values. Food is a really interesting space right now, globally, um, but also in the U.S., which is where we operate, um, where I think there's an intersection of a few things. Sustainability is a big, big one. I would also say plant forward. 
um, is a big component of that as well. And, and as we think about what it's going to take for the planet to be sustained, we need to change the way we're eating. If you look at healthcare and what's happening, most of the top disease states are food-related. Um, so it is really important and it's heavy. I think the other piece that we have seen a lot is the whole have-have-not thing that's happening on a broad scale basis is also happening in food and it's not okay. Um, there is no one, no matter where you fall on the income spectrum or any of that, there is nobody who thinks it's okay that some customers have access to healthy, fresh food and some people do not. Um, and that's really where we have focused in with our Zero Hunger, Zero Waste Foundation, but also really our new brand positioning is to say, we also agree that is not okay. Like we are not going to have a have, have not thing around eating healthy, fresh food. Um, and what I love about Kroger is we're big enough to actually make a difference um, in terms of accessibility for our customers, but also changing the supply chain for food, changing regulation around food um, to really be an advocate for our customers, not just in that one-to-one -one way of your local grocery store, but also in the other work that we're doing with um, key partners, um, with legislators to make sure we're all going in a direction that people feel good about. So if if we re realize your dreams in this area, five years out, what will we see different from these efforts? Um, we have, um, as part of our, I guess it's our CSR platform, but um, we have a, a foundation um, called Zero Hunger, Zero Waste, and it literally is a little more than five years out, 2025, um, a vision to end hunger and food waste in our communities. So that is the end sort of nirvana goal that we want to get to is it just makes Sounds no like sense. Sounds like a pretty good purpose. Yeah, it's a really good purpose. And the fact that we're not just saying it, but have a lot of work in terms of where we're investing, who we're partnering with, um, what our corporate affairs team is working on in terms of sort of legislation to actually not just, you know, we partner with Feeding America and that's really, really important, but we also need to change the system um, to make sure, you know, yes, we can give, you know, a million meals and then two million meals and keep escalating. Better would be to make sure no one needs to give meals because people have the food they need. Um, I think on a sort of closer in basis for most consumers, organics that are affordable, I think is a big one. You know, we know more customers want to eat organic. Um, we have some ways where we put that in reach of people through things like our Simple Truth brand, but I think there's still more work to do on how do we get particularly fresh, organic, you know, whatever healthy means to an individual customer, but really making sure from a convenience, location, price point of view that that really is available. So Mandy, I want to end on some advice you might have for a young person starting their career today. I mean, you're a very inspiring leader and you've had a wonderful career. You have a young family. You're still very young. So what's advice to our listeners who are just getting started in their career that you would have about making the right choices and having a full and happy and productive life? Um, a couple things I'd probably call out. Um, one, I would never have imagined 15, 20 years ago that this is where I would be sitting. So be open to the journey, uh, taking you where it will take you. Well, I think it's good to have aspirations. It's sometimes being open um, and being curious. Um, never stop learning. I, uh, it's probably my background in data, um, but just always being curious of learning new things, looking at what's going on. Um, spending time reading about things you don't know about. Um, 
because that will help you to grow over time, but also uncover areas that you're really passionate about. Like, for example, I started working on Old Spice deodorant and, uh, you know, then laundry detergent. Food is now a massive passion area for me that I wouldn't have told you 15 years ago that thinking about food in America and all of that would be where I would end up spending a lot of my time. Um, so being open on the balancing at all, I don't know if anyone ever really balances at all, but um, I had some really good mentors in this space um, all along the way, but especially when I was really in the thick of it with like babies at home and, you know, trying to do all of that, that basically said, you have to define your own roles and you can't have everything all at once. So um, one I think is sort of, um, you can have five roles um, and they have to be in priority order because you can't be on all cylinders with all of them at once. So like, um, for me, I have to be one of the roles because otherwise I will just drain the battery to nothing. Um, but then, you know, like I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I have a team at work and things I need to deliver there. I'm a friend, I'm a daughter. Uh, and sometimes being okay that those things may sort of rotate a little bit. Um, I worked uh, 70% after I had my first daughter, um, which probably wasn't the fastest path to get to like the most senior role. Um but again, advice someone gave me, like, it's all a season. Um, like right now, enjoy the baby you have at home. Work three or four days a week if that's the balance that feels right for you and do good work when you're here. Um, but it doesn't all have to happen right away at the same time. And, and I think sometimes getting okay with that and enjoying the journey a little bit is helpful. It's beautiful advice, no matter what age you are. <laughs> so thank you for that. Last, last question. Who else should we have on the CMO podcast? Who would you like to listen to? Ooh, uh, Wendy Clark would, great would be idea. great. Um, I know she's not really a CMO now. She's a CEO, but. Um, oh, we have CEOs and CMOs. We have all sorts of people, thought leaders. Yeah, you know, anyone who's helpful for, for someone in a leadership role. That's kind of our criteria. Awesome. And she would certainly meet that. Yeah, I think she's so inspirational. Um, oh my gosh, so, so many, uh, Beth Comstock, um, who I find very inspirational and the journey she was able to take GE on is one that's inspired me. Um, I'm trying to think who else. So Beth and Wendy, if you're listening, we're calling. <laughs> that's great, Mandy. I love this conversation. You were so generous with your time and your thoughts and, and opening up for us. So thank you so much. Thanks for having me. This was fun. That was my conversation with Mandy Rassi. What I loved about this one was Mandy speaking about her career at P&G and how that helped prepare her to be the head of brand building at Kroger. And I loved how she talked about picking an agency to help Kroger sort of amplify their purpose and bring their purpose to life and the, the amazing creativity that is coming forth in the new campaign. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.